Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is James, and we are reading Chapter 8 of Death and Other Origin Stories, Lupus Crescente. Fighting against the desire to stay ensconced in the safety of Gryffindor Tower, Remus dropped his creased and frayed copy of The Left Hand of Darkness onto his maroon duvet and pulled a soft lilac sweater over his gray t-shirt. He shoved his feet into well-worn loafers as he made for the door and followed the sounds of other students, all migrating towards the Great Hall for lunch. James and Sirius weren't in the common room, and he felt a twinge of irritation he couldn't quite place. Things had been, well, they'd been a bit awkward, strained even, between Remus and Sirius, between all of them, ever since Sirius had come back so suddenly late one night, only days into the Easter holiday, and Remus couldn't seem to place why. Sirius had been startled and caught out, guilty and defensive, smelling strongly of sweet sweat and bodies much too old for him, smelling of things Remus couldn't yet identify, hadn't learned the names for, but that made his skin prickle and throat uncomfortably tight. It made his body tense in a way that was entirely new, made his stomach lurch and head feel as if it were suddenly full of a chorus of bees. It made his fists clench without his permission and his mouth go oddly dry with the way Sirius suddenly wouldn't look him in the eye when they were alone, as if Sirius was afraid Remus could read his thoughts, as if he were hiding something from Remus. Remus had asked, kindly and softly, if Sirius was okay, if he wanted to go to the kitchens, if he fancied a walk on the grounds, but Sirius had rebuffed him. Oh no, Mr. Lupin, you go on without me, I've got things to attend to. And so it went, day in and day out, since then. Remus reached out tentatively to fall back into their rhythm, into their soft considerations of one another, but Sirius couldn't seem to be bothered, couldn't seem to make the time was suddenly always busy and surrounded by others. So Remus stopped asking. He had been stuck with a feeling, sticky like tar in his throat, with the realization that Sirius, the boy who pulled secrets from him, kicking and screaming, was keeping secrets of his own. Secrets that were weighing him down, piling up around him, making him quieter and more subdued than Remus had ever known him. Not that anyone else seemed to notice, for Sirius, ever the performer, never passed up an opportunity to be the center of attention. After Quidditch practice, he could often be found nudging shoulders with Gideon, whispering a particularly low-brow joke, or playing dueling with James in the common room, much to the amusement and cheers of onlookers. But, Remus saw, when the audience vanished, that so did Sirius's contagious, often false smile leaving him lost in his thoughts, staring hard at a point on the floor, his fingers clenching and releasing without his notice. It was in these lulls and moments of quiet that Remus would sit himself beside Sirius and wait, wait for the secrets to come, wait for things to go back to normal. But they didn't. Sirius would notice Remus beside him, and the mask would fall back into place, odd and unsettling, and Sirius would make a joke and retreat leave Remus to his own devices, leave him hurt and confused. Remus would watch and feel the splintering ground between them widen, their magic suddenly so careful around one another. He would watch how Sirius was becoming closer and closer with Gideon and the other Quidditch players, how he was teasing girls with a roguish smile and playful winks, how his eyes would follow the older boys and how he would mimic their antics. Remus watched as Sirius would grab girls' hands and spin them around, giggling with delight, 
press not-so-innocent lips to their blushing cheeks, leaving a trail of misty-eyed and hopeful faces in his wake. Remus couldn't place the anger he felt, watching Sirius with these girls, with his secrets and dramatics. He couldn't place the deep and irrational sense of betrayal he felt, the audacity that Sirius could drag Remus's secrets, unwilling to see the light of day, out into the open, make him spill his guts onto the table and pick through them with a careless curiosity, lull him into a place of safety and security, guiding him through the labyrinth of his own mind, hand in hand, pulling secrets from his mouth as he pulled him through the castle to the kitchens. The audacity that Sirius could do all of that and yet turn around and bury his own, hide them from Remus. What did Remus really know about Sirius anyways, he thought bitterly. He never gave anything of himself, instead asking with bold intensity that Remus pour his most guarded thoughts into the space between them. He offered to hold these things for Remus, demanded it even, but clearly didn't think Remus was capable of doing the same in return. These realizations, piling up over days and weeks, stung him deeply, made him aloof and distant, yet desperate to capture some of the coveted attention of his best mate, attention that he was throwing out lavishly towards people who only loved him for his booming laugh and undeniable skills, but who didn't know about the scars and the fears like Remus did. He had spent many nights since Easter laying in his bed and staring blankly up at his hangings, drowning in this new sense of loss, of quiet abandonment. Sirius had stopped walking Remus in the night to go to the kitchens, stopped accompanying him to the library, even stopped taking him for walks in the days before the moon. He was quieter and more reserved than usual and was spending most of his time with James, sometimes even Peter. As he climbed out of the portrait hole and straightened up, he heard shuffling behind him and turned to see Lily and Marlene climbing after him. I think you should just rather ask him, Marlene, what's the worst that could happen? Lily was insisting in a hushed whisper. Hello, Remus said politely as they fell into step beside him. Marlene jumped and didn't respond to Lily. Instead, she turned to Remus with an over-enthusiastic, hi. Lily subtly rolled her eyes and nodded coolly by way of greeting. The three of them walked down to the great hall, chatting amicably about their potions assignment. Lily finally thawing enough to offer some helpful pointers about working with crushed pearls. Remus spotted Peter and James at the center of the table, and they parted ways, the girls moving to meet their friends at the far end, Marlene smiling and throwing furtive looks over her shoulder as they went. Sitting down across from Peter, James whistled appreciatively at him. What? he asked amusedly as he reached for an apple. Marlene, huh? James asked in a suggestive tone with a dimpled smile and a raised eyebrow. Remus felt the color rise in his face, but he wasn't really sure why. What about her? Not my type is all, but good for you, James said, still smiling, watching Remus closely. Who's not your type? asked Sirius as he plopped down besides James, dropping an arm over his shoulder and reaching for a tomato sandwich. Marlene, sniggered Peter, who poured himself more pumpkin juice. Remus narrowed his eyes and looked between his friends. What are you lot talking about? he asked, nettled, slicing his apple into neat pieces on his plate. Marlene's been giving Mr. Lupin here moon eyes for weeks now, and they just walked to lunch together, James explained to Peter and Sirius, as if that would make things clear. Remus laid down his knife and stared nonplussed at James. And? You could do better, I expect, Remus, Sirius said. But everyone's got to start somewhere, I suppose. He winked with his jaunty grin, and Remus's stomach lurched unpleasantly. 
He couldn't fathom a response, for he had no clue what they were talking about. So, do you like her? Peter asked, leaning onto the table dramatically with a smarmy smile. Remus spluttered around his bite of apple. I, well, I mean, I like her well enough. She's helpful in charms, and she always lets me borrow a quill in transfiguration when I forget what's not to like. He looked to his friends with a furrowed brow to see them all smiling slyly back at him. But do you like her? James asked, as if that was somehow more specific. How do you mean? Remus asked, his voice becoming shrill, his utter confusion mounting. Sirius laughed, deep and affectionate, bracing himself on James's shoulder, and Remus only felt irritation for the display. Would you like to do some late-night studying with her? Peter asked with wiggling eyebrows, giggling at Remus's unwavering amusement. I mean, her marks are rather good, he started seriously, not knowing how else to respond to the question. The three of them burst out in howling laughter, Peter lying his face down on the table and James and Sirius falling onto one another. Remus narrowed his eyes, looking between the reddened faces of his friends and feeling like the butt of a joke they weren't letting him in on. He stood abruptly and tried to extricate himself from the bench. No, wait, Remus, James started, reaching across the table to tug at the sleeve of his lilac sweater, still laughing. We didn't mean anything by it. We were just trying to figure out if you were interested in Marlene, because she's clearly taken with you. The penny dropped and Remus's mouth fell in a shocked O oh, as he thudded back down on the bench, staring into James's kind face. You mean how you like Lily? he asked innocently. James nearly choked on his own tongue, his laughter morphing into sputters of horror in an effort to deny what he clearly thought to be a heinous accusation. Sirius fell off the bench and onto the floor with roaring laughter, Peter banging his fists on the table, tears in his eyes. I do not like Lily, he hissed through clenched teeth, head bent low as if hiding. Well, I don't like Marlene, Remus said shortly, swinging his legs over the bench when the laughter continued and James began hissing for all of them to be quiet, looking shiftily up and down the table, ensuring no one had heard what Remus had said. Remus, full of exasperation and embarrassment, confusion and irritation, left his friends to finish their lunch. He heard Sirius's voice, weak with laughter, say to James, He got you, mate. He got you. James's acidic and muttered response of, Shut up, Sirius. I swear to Godric. A few times, Remus had walked into the dorms to hear James and Sirius talking about girls, of all things, about what they wore and who they spent time with, how they looked and how they might feel to touch. It made him profoundly uncomfortable, hot under his clothes, itchy almost like his skin was too tight, like he didn't belong, like he was overhearing something he shouldn't, like his friends were turning into people he couldn't relate to anymore. One night, he overheard Sirius telling James that Lily, as a muggle-born, should not go around without a bra, as it would give people the wrong idea, that you just don't know who could take advantage of her, to which James replied, dude, it's not 1807 anymore, girls can wear whatever the bloody hell they like. And Sirius, affronted, grumbled his half-assed objections. When they noticed Remus, red-faced and wide-eyed, they promptly changed the subject to Quidditch. Most peculiarly of all, he had seen a few Slytherins, older ones, seventh years even, nodding to Sirius in the halls as they passed, nodding to him like an old friend, like an equal, no longer taunting him or casting appraising looks. Even the Slytherin Quidditch team had been subdued towards him, much to everyone's confusion. When James ruffled his hair and asked what Slytherin he was dating, Sirius became quiet and dismissive, 
defensive and different, muttering a drop at James in an uncharacteristically serious tone. The secrets piled up and Remus felt the ground beneath him shift. Something insidious and unseen cracked the foundations of their bond, and none of them had the words or tools to acknowledge the change. They just let it happen, let it drift them in different directions, let the undertow take them. He skipped lunch a few weeks before the end of term, finding mealtimes with James and Sirius too difficult as the weeks wore on, with their theatrical antics and endless discussion of Quidditch and girls and things with hidden meanings that he didn't understand. He more often sought the refuge of the library. Sometimes he studied with Marlene and Peter. Sometimes Lily even joined them. Every once in a while, Dorcas and Davy came as well. He found he enjoyed Lily quite a lot. She was funny and clever and kind and fair, and she drove James to madness, which was endlessly amusing. On his way to the library, he ducked into the boys' bathroom, one he loved for always being empty. As he came into the large, circular, tiled room, he heard echoing whispers from the far side and saw a skew reflection. He froze mid-step, fingertips touching the wall, ears straining. I, I just don't know what to do, whispered a shaky, scared voice, a rambling sentence punctuated with stuttering sobs spilling forth from tremulous lips. I don't think I can go back next year. I can't sleep. I mean, I haven't slept since Easter. I just keep seeing her face, and it's... It's sick, Sirius. You must know how sick it is that they do this to them. To us. I don't know what to do. Cadmus, get it together, mate. He heard Sirius's hushed voice, calm, cool, soft. Saw his distorted reflection in the skew mirror. Firm hands gripped into Cadmus Eaxley's shoulders, holding him upright and stable. This is how we survive. Get out if you can. I've already got something set up for over the summer, and... The short Ravenclaw with the olive skin and dark hair broke down into fresh sobs, his face buried in his hands. Remus turned on his heel and dashed out of the bathroom, unsure if he was noticed. Wandering the aisles of the library, books flowing gently past him, he wondered what life Sirius was hiding from them. He had wondered if James knew, if he were the only one left out. He wondered if the reality of being friends with the werewolf had finally set in for them, if they thought that made Remus untrustworthy, unworthy. Late that night, tucked into his bed, a book opened in his lap, and the sound of Sirius, James, and Peter writing a list of all their favorite dragons and what they would do if they had one, a sudden tapping noise at the window drew his attention. Is that an owl? Peter asked, interrupting an argument about Chinese fireballs and Peruvian inktails, leaning over to look out the window beside Sirius's bed. Who's getting love letters at this hour? Sirius asked, getting up and striding imperiously towards the window, his silk robe billowing, exposing his stolen weird sister's t-shirt. Opening the window, a little gray owl forced its way in and flew directly at Remus, dropping a heavy cream envelope onto his head. The owl crash-landed ungracefully on the bed and hooted with indignation. It had an oval face framed with a dark circle, its giant amber-ringed eyes looked completely shocked at its own existence, and from where Remus sat, he could see it seemed to be missing a foot. What on earth? Remus muttered, picking up the envelope and seeing it was a ministry seal. Why are you getting ministry owls at nine o'clock in the evening on a school night, Mr. Lupin? James asked askance, hands on his hips, thick-framed glasses slipping down his nose. It's from my dad he said, seeing the familiar handwriting. 
to Remus J. Lupin, second year boys dorm, Gryffindor Tower, Hogwarts. His stomach clenched painfully. Go on then, Peter encouraged as all three of them climbed onto Remus's bed, the owl hooting in protest as it tried to get out of their way. He sighed, breaking the thick purple wax seal. Remus, let me just start by apologizing. It's been a rough few months without your mom, but that's no excuse. I'm sorry I wasn't there, and I'm sorry you had to find your own way back to school. I promise I'm doing better and that things will be better this summer. The owl is for you. She's a southern white face. We have no idea how she managed to get blown all the way to England, but when she turned up at the ministry with a mangled foot, I know exactly what to do with her. Her name is Claudia. See you at King's Cross. Love, Dad. Remus handed the letter off to James and looked up at the owl, who seemed timid and a bit awkward. She seemed to sink back in on herself, eyes impossibly wide, as Remus gently touched the feathers on her head. It was the most embarrassing animal he'd ever seen. He loved her instantly. Days later, the sun rose slowly, spilling the light of late spring across the lush grounds. Remus sat cross-legged in a plushy armchair in the common room, the one beside the tall stained glass window, tucked into the corner. The approaching full moon had him tossing and turning in the night and up in the wee hours of the morning, before the sun was even a thought on the horizon. Sirius, his usual companion of the darkest hours, had been scarce and aloof and no longer available to keep him company, so he had to entertain and distract himself. He was in his pajamas still, rereading The Hobbit for what felt like the thousandth time. At this point, he didn't even need to read it. He could damn well near recite the whole thing from memory. The telltale shuffle of Sirius's steps on the stone stairs, the smell of his spicy soap, and loud yawn drifted down to Remus before he ever even entered the common room, silk trousers swishing in his wake. Remus's stomach twisted in a way he couldn't explain a new kind of tension he associated with Sirius. He didn't look up from his book as Sirius sat down across from him with a sleepy, Morning, Master Lupin. His lip twitched. Morning, King of the Castle, he replied evenly, not looking up from the yellowing, faded pages before him. He had kept his promise of not calling him Master Black anymore, but couldn't help giving him ridiculous epithets instead when the opportunity presented itself. Sirius grinned and rolled his eyes. What are you reading? Sirius asked after a long silence. He held the book up for Sirius to see as his thumb carefully flipped a page. He wasn't really reading, just distracting himself from the boy before him, the one he had so often sought refuge in, had opened himself up to, but now was only left with an uneasy tension ringing between them, taut and strained like a wire. Their magic, uncertain and flighty, contained and stiff, he felt a giant invisible wall had been built up between them, made of secrets and lies, omissions and avoidance. Aren't you sick of reading that? Sirius asked, sounding bored and tired, distracted as he often was these days. No, he replied shortly, the question raking across his skin, raising his hackles. Read it to me then, Sirius demanded and closed his eyes, nestling back into the plush chair with his knees pulled up to his chest his robe falling haphazardly open. 
He looked at Sirius a moment, deflating. He saw the tension in his face, even as he tried to relax back into the velvet chair, saw the defensiveness of his posture, how he hugged himself. Remus sighed and looked down at the page, the words coming easily to him. Farewell, they cried. Wherever you fare till your Iries receive you at the journey's end. That is the polite thing to say among eagles. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks, answered Gandalf, who knew the correct reply. He read until Sirius's head tipped down onto his shoulder and began snoring softly, his arms going limp and his knees slowly slumping away from his body. Remus quietly closed the book, but continued speaking, reciting the passage from memory as he pulled the orange afghan off the chair behind him. He is a skin changer. He changes his skin. Sometimes he is a huge black bear. Sometimes he is a great strong black-haired man with huge arms and a great beard. I cannot tell you much more, though that ought to be enough. He unfolded his own long legs and tiptoed across the space between them, tossing the blanket over Sirius's sleeping form, tucking him in. Sirius mumbled. What was that? Remus smiled, his recitations interrupted, his irritation having long since evaporated. I said he's an animagus. Born is, he grumbled, pulling the blankets tighter around him, eyes still closed, muttering something about why muggles could write such things so close to the heart of magic. Read more. Sure, summoner of house elves, he grinned and picked up his book again. Where were we? Bears, Sirius supplied unhelpfully. Ah, yes, bears, he agreed, huffing an endeared laugh. Some say that he is a bear descended from the great and ancient bears of the mountains. Ancestors are shit, mumbled Sirius, midway to a snore. May 16th, 1973. Oh, for the love of Helga, dragonpox in May. What an utter nightmare. They'll just have to cancel the last Hogsmeade trip. Puttyfoots is a den of communicable diseases. Again, I swear on my life. Madame Pomfrey was pacing the hospital wing, arms full of blankets and potions as she bustled between beds of moaning and sniffling students. Dragonpox had swept through Hogsmeade, getting a fair number of students sick and running Poppy ragged. Remus, in his ratty full moon clothes, stood in the fading light of the evening in her office door, waiting for her to take him to his tree, feeling antsy and irritated. The moon wouldn't rise until the early hours of the morning, but he was tired and wanted to sleep. He was almost looking forward to a night of quiet away from everyone, away from Sirius and James and their theatrics, away from Peter and his sullen jealousy. Pomfrey threw back a curtain, exposing a green-tinged and pockmarked Davy Gudgeon, curled in on himself beneath a mountain of blankets. Oh, Mr. Lupin, don't tell me you're ill too, she declared. Uh, he was unsure how to remind her what day it was, with the hospital wing so full. Oh, of course, she smacked her forehead. She looked exhausted and harassed, the piteous moans of sick children filling the echoing hospital wing. I could, I mean, I could just go alone, he asked, tentatively, not wanting to worry her any more than she needed to be. She wiped her hands on her apron and studied him carefully, her eyes soft and concerned. Will you be all right on your own? She asked in a quiet, uncharacteristic voice. He nodded. 
Do you remember the spell to lock the door? He nodded again. She took a deep breath, looking slightly relieved. Okay, Mr. Lupin? Okay, I'll see you tomorrow then. Remus turned on his heel and strode down the hall, but not before Madame Pomfrey pulled back another curtain to assess someone else. Severus's dark eyes looked out beneath his curtain of black hair, framing his green-tinged skin, and met Remus's. His face was set in a curious suspicion as Remus looked away and made for the door. He replayed this conversation with Madame Pomfrey in his mind over and over again, trying to see if they had let anything slip, if an eavesdropper could be able to piece it together. When he reached the tree, he took a deep breath and shook himself of his worries. Wingardium Leviosa, he said, pointing his wand at a stick and navigating it towards the knot in the bulging root that would freeze the angry flailing branches. He felt a twinge of pride as he strode down the long tunnel, realizing that he was old enough to do this like an adult. As a 13-year-old, he was clever and capable. He didn't need anyone to hold his hand through this anymore. He could do it on his own. Madame Pomfrey kept her promise and met Remus the next evening after the fuller mood had set on the horizon. When they emerged from the tunnel, the grounds were bathed in a deep gold from the sun hanging low. As they traversed the rolling lawns, the sound of cheering and jeering reached their ears from the Quidditch pitch, where a high-intensity pick-up practice game of Quidditch between Gryffindor and Hufflepuff was taking place in preparation for tomorrow's Gryffindor-Ravenclaw game. Remus's thumb swept the new gash on his inner wrist as his eyes sought out Sirius and James. Sirius was easy to find, his black hair streaking behind him, a bat held high above his head as he brought it swiftly across the path of an approaching bludger, sending it with great force towards the Hufflepuff Seeker, who dove spectacularly out of the way at the last second. He couldn't see James, but he soon realized why. Remus! James shouted from up ahead, startling him. Madame Pomfrey, clearly not wanting to give Remus any grief or having him deal with unnecessary questions, winked at him and kept walking towards the castle. Remus smiled, hands in his pockets, and waited for James, laden in his squeaking Quidditch gear, to catch up. Why aren't you at practice? Pete's got dragon pox, James grimaced. Oh no, not him too. Yeah, he started turning green last night. I had a hell of a time persuading him to go to the hospital wing. Took me the last 40 minutes to get him there, whinging as he was. Made me late. James looked worried and irritated in equal measure. But I can't afford to get sick. The game is tomorrow, and I can nearly taste the victory. He was practically vibrating in his shin guards, and Remus couldn't help but smile. James was always kind, always going out of his way to help his friends, even if it meant being late to Quidditch practice. They fell into step, heading towards the ruckus on the pitch. How was last night? He asked quietly. Remus shrugged. Poppy sent me on my own, but it was fine. James nodded. I was wondering where you were when I took Peter. He was hoping you'd keep him company. Remus shrugged again, the knot in his stomach twisting unpleasantly, but he wasn't sure why. It was only after James swatted his hands away from his face that he realized he was picking an old scar by his ear. Must you? James asked, irritation lacing his worry. Sorry, he mumbled. I didn't notice. If you do it again, I'm making you hold my hand and it will be embarrassing, he warned. Remus barked a startled, disbelieving laugh. Later, a cheerful Hufflepuff team left the field after being brutally decimated 345-6 to 6 
and Gideon laughed loudly about how they could remain so upbeat in the face of such embarrassing circumstances. Remus fell behind the clamoring team, in step with Marlene, whom he'd also become quite fond of, and that Hufflepuff with the black hair, Patricia, and her nasally wheeze. Marlene was exuberant and joyful, laughing loudly and touching Remus's arm often. His eyes found Sirius, who had James on his back, yelling, Charge! as he ran full speed around the group of students, cackling madly. He returned his attention back to Patricia, who was telling them her plans to vacation in Iceland with her family over the summer holiday. The traditional magical system in Iceland is really very fascinating. My grand told me half of all magical folk don't use wands or go to formal school. Remus! James was suddenly very close, blocking his way, sounding accusatory and scandalized. What? he asked, startled, stopped in his tracks. What the bloody hell did I tell you about that? He scolded, pulling Remus's hand away from his chin, congealed blood under his thumbnail. His cheeks burned in embarrassment as Marlene, Patricia, and a few others close by watched the exchange closely. Shit, I wasn't paying attention, Remus said sheepishly, stuffing his hands into his pocket. Oh, no, no, James said, grabbing Remus's arm and trying to yank his hand towards him. I told you the punishment for this transgression. Oh my God, James, no, get out of here, he pleaded, pulling free and ducking behind Marlene, using her as a barrier. No, get over here and hold my hand, James shouted, causing several people to whistle and laugh. Oi, Sirius yelled, materializing out of nowhere. Whose hand are we holding? No one, we're not holding anyone's hand, Remus yelled, winding through people, dodging a determined and mad-eyed looking James. Sirius, James yelled. We have to hold Remus's hand so he stops picking. Get him. No! Remus yelled, half laughing, half mortified, as he began to run in circles around his curious classmates. James and Sirius stalked him in an unnerving practice unison. Sirius crowed in joy at the prospect of a challenge. Mr. Loopy Lupin, you can run, but you can't hide. Oh my god, I swear I'll stop. Go away, Remus pleaded, his face splitting in a reluctant grin as he tried to use a third-year Hufflepuff as a human shield. He had missed this nonsense, aggravating though it was. That's not how this works, Remus, James preened, looking positively feral as he crouched low, ready to pounce. How else will you learn? Remus had no chance. He wasn't hardened by a year of Quidditch practice, and he was tired from the full moon. As they closed in, he tried to dart away, to run as fast as he could, but after only four steps, he was tackled to the ground, James and Sirius laughing maniacally. Oh, you oafs, he complained, an elbow in his back, but they weren't listening. They dragged him off the ground and each gripped one of his hands in theirs, the Quidditch leathers sweaty against his palms. Remus moaned and hung his head as a group of students around them broke out in laughter and giggling at his expense. I hate you both. No, you don't, James said unconcernedly. What do you think, Sirius? Hmm? James dropped his voice and whispered conspiratorially, ignoring Remus's squawk of indignation. You reckon we can publicly humiliate our dear wolf child every time he picks his scars? I certainly do, old boy. Sirius answered with a wink, squeezing Remus's hand harder as he tried to wiggle free. They were just so strong, and Remus was so tired. He groaned louder as he was led to and through the castle, his head hung low in his walk of shame. They wouldn't let go of his hands until they were all the way back in Gryffindor Common Room, 
where Sirius dropped it and made a smooth segue to leaning on an armchair, reaching out to tuck a curl behind the ear of a girl two years his senior, making her blush and lean in closer. So there you go. James turned to him with a kind smile, squeezing his hand tightly one last time for emphasis. Stop picking. Remus shook his head and turned towards the stairs, his palms sweaty from the attentions and leather gloves. You're unbelievable. We love you, James shouted back. The knot in Remus's stomach relaxed just a bit at the thought. In the end, Gryffindor decimated Ravenclaw in the final match. James had scored a half a dozen spectacular goals. Sirius and Gideon, a well-oiled machine, danced in unison, and Cordelia tore through the air at breakneck speeds. In the final moments of the game, she and the Ravenclaw Seeker dove in a dicey game of chicken, snatching the snitch and pulling up, both of them scraping their knees on the turf in their effort to avoid crashing. Remus had cheered and shouted along with Lily and Marlene, Dorcas and Alice, the rest of their house jostling and hugging one another as they made a mad dash down from the stands and into the pitch. James and Sirius were on Fabian and Gideon's shoulders, being carried towards Dumbledore on the center pitch, who lifted the coveted Quidditch cup to Frank. He raised it above his head, yelling and celebrating with the rest, their voices lost in the cacophony from the surging crowd descending on them. Back in the common room, Remus sat with Marlene and Lily, playing a loud game of exploding snap, while the rest of the house was in a state of high excitement. An older boy had snuck a few bottles of butterbeer, as well as a bit of muggle scotch, which were now being surreptitiously passed around under the noses of distracted prefects. James, still beaming and victorious, wearing the Gryffindor flag that normally occupied the top of the tower as a cape, plopped down on the sofa beside Remus throwing an arm over his shoulders. Lily, with the rush of a Gryffindor win, outshining even her loathing of James, congratulated him heartily on a game well played along with the rest of them. James ruffled his hand through his hair, trying to appear nonchalant, but his chest swelled noticeably, his smile impossibly wide. He had eyes for no one but Lily, who hadn't seemed to notice the effect this comment had made on him. Remus, getting tired of listening to James try to repeatedly and not so subtly get Lily's attention, scanned the room for Sirius. Dean, a fourth-year boy, was standing unusually close to Sirius, with Emmeline Vance, a third year with dark curly hair, on his other side. They both wore similarly hopeful and hungry looks. Sirius, who was basking in the glow of innumerable attentions and fawning adoration from the entire house, didn't seem to mind Dean idly touching his arm or Emmeline batting her eyelashes and whispering in his ear. The sight made his stomach twist and his skin clammy and sweaty. He was a bit hot under his sweater and his hands were suddenly damp. You all right, mate? James asked, jostling him to attention, handing him a deck of cards. Remus shook himself, rubbing his palms together, bewildered by his reaction. What? Yeah, no, I'm fine. Another game? When Remus's eyes sought Sirius again, he was gone from the common room, and Remus couldn't explain why this annoyed him so much. The evening of the leaving feast found James, Peter, and Remus squished on a sofa in the common room, pamphlets for third-year classes spread between them. Sirius was pretending to duel Fabian before the fire, a few girls giggling as they watched. 
they were all a bit subdued, knowing that Gryffindor was the last in house points, of which the four of them were largely to blame. Hufflepuff was first, followed by Slytherin and Ravenclaw in third. It was truly embarrassing. What's McGonagall playing at? asked Peter, his brow furrowed. I'm 13. How am I supposed to know what classes to take for my future? He sounded whiny and tired, overwhelmed and frustrated. He had nearly failed his charms exam because of his stint in the hospital with dragonpox, and the potions final was so disastrous that it nearly sent him back to Madame Pomfrey. Come on, Pete, it's not so bad. Just pick what sounds most interesting, James cajoled. Peter groaned like a dying whale, and Remus cracked an amused smile, the scar by his mouth pulling in a familiar fashion. What are you going for? James asked him. Remus shrugged, his eyes scanning the list. He sort of agreed with Peter. It seemed like too big a commitment for a 13-year-old to choose the course of their magical education. But, he reasoned to himself, he was doing his transformations on his own now, eating more and more like a normal person. He hadn't even been picking his scars as much as usual, nor did he need the company late in the night to distract him from the weight of his own existence anymore. He thought perhaps he was ready for this responsibility. He was practically an adult. James stood abruptly, jostling him from his mulling. Evans, he greeted too loudly. Lily barely repressed an exasperated sigh. Barely. Ever since the match, James had been chasing the high of being in Lily's good graces and did not know when to take a step back. It only ended up irritating Lily more, which made James even more insufferable. What are you signing up for next year? She looked at him a moment, arms crossed, eyes calculating as if waiting to see if he was asking seriously or setting her up for some sort of joke. Seeming to decide it was safe, she answered, Arithmancy, ancient runes, and classical oikomancy. I'm trying to see if McGonagall will let me take divination as well. Oikomancy? James asked, surprised. Why would you want to take oikomancy? All you learn is how to clean the house and set tables. It's a useless class. Not everyone grew up with magic, Potter, she retorted, offended. What, like you would know how to use a microwave? A what? James demanded. Exactly. She looked smug. What does that have to do with anything? With an air of explaining to a troll that one plus one equals two, she said, Oikomancy is the study of wizarding culture. It's for muggle-borns to learn how to get by in the wizarding world because we didn't grow up with magic. Cleaning and cooking with magic, formal wizarding traditions, you can take all that for granted because your mom's been showing you and doing it for you your whole life. Have fun, Evans. Gideon interrupted from his chair, where he was giving serious tips on his dueling form. Professor Abbott is a piece of work. She can't be any tougher than McGonagall, Lily dismissed. Don't get me wrong, he assured. You'll learn lots, fascinating stuff too, but she will fail you. My girlfriend is in her class and she hates her. Remus had been listening, tapping his muggle pencil on his sign-up sheet when Lily finally got bored with James and walked away. Well, if she's taking oikomancy, then I'm taking muggle studies, he said decisively, as if it were a competition of some sort. What do you say? I don't think it'll make her like you any better, Remus snorted. Shut up, that's not, how dare, ugh! James sputtered and Peter cackled. Serious, what are you doing? Peter asked, just as serious, frustrated with not being able to disarm Fabian, dropped his wand and tackled him. Gideon cheered and Remus rolled his eyes. 
He read through the list again. Divination. Learn the art of divinatory and prophetic practices. To know the future is to know thyself. Professor Navarro. Ancient runes. The noble writing system of time-honored magical languages and ancient spellwork. Professor Babbling. Muggle studies. Understanding the behavior and actions of muggles in our world today so that we may coexist and blend in. Professor Fig. Arithmancy. Study the magical properties of numbers and how they build the world around us. Professor Vector. Care of magical creatures. Learn basic to advance magical animal handling with hands-on lessons. Professor Kettleburn. Alencrency. Question everything. Professor Shafiq. Oikomancy. Polishing young minds and new magic for life in esteemed wizarding society. Professor Abbott. Sirius eventually emerged from the floor after being put in a headlock, disheveled and panting. He reclined down on the arm of the sofa and leaned over Remus's shoulder to read the list. You couldn't pay me to take divination or oikomancy. What a load of rubbish. Although, apparently, I supposedly have some sort of seer in my family line, though it's been disputed. Some say she was just raving mad. Which do you think it was? Remus asked, not looking up from the list. Oh, she was off her rocker, I'm sure. But seer is a much more respectable title than spell-damaged cousin. Looks much better on family trees. Remus snorted and ticked off care of magical creatures, ancient runes, and elenquency. Elenquency? Sirius asked, yanking Remus's sign-up sheet away from him. I've never even heard of that. What is it? What kind of description is that? Sounds interesting, Remus said, intrigued and drawn to the mystery of it. Oh, Prof Shafiq is amazing, Frank piped up as he was passing. The final exam every year is a single question that you have to discuss. What kind of a class is it? James asked. It's like the philosophy of magic, or rather the ethics, he said, sounding like he wasn't even really sure what the class was about. No, it's more like the theory of magic, Gideon said. It's fascinating and very little homework. Everyone oohed and immediately marked their papers. Peter signed up for care of magical creatures, muggle studies, and elenquency, wanting the easiest classes possible. James went for arithmancy, muggle studies, and elenquency out of spite. Serious for ancient runes, care of magical creatures, and elenquency, wanting as much free time as humanly possible. The next morning, they were ushered down to the Hogsmeade station, where they boarded the train for Muggle London. Sirius wished them all a hasty and distracted goodbye as he smoothed his hair in a neat ponytail, a grouchy house elf slinking towards them from the shadows behind a large potted display of dying begonias. James made them all promise they'd ride as much as possible, hugging them tightly before they were pulled in opposite directions. July 16th, 1973. Blearily, Remus woke, naked and tired, bathed in the early morning summer sun streaming through his bedroom window. He groaned sleepily when he heard a gentle knock at the door. You up, bud? came the familiar, gruff voice of his dad. Yeah, he answered in scratchy tones, looking around him to see if his pajamas had survived the night. The tattered strips lay in a heap in the corner. He sighed. I need pants. His dad cracked the door and tossed a bundle of clean clothes in, and Remus caught it gratefully. I'm coming in, he said as Remus was pulling his t-shirt over his head. 
Lyle had really tried to keep his promise since Remus had gotten home. He came back from the office at a decent hour nearly every evening, and he had only once more come home smelling of brandy. The cupboards had been regularly stocked, and Remus had yet to run out of crunchy peanut butter. He had spent the first three weeks of his holiday walking on eggshells, waiting, waiting for the rug to be pulled out from under him, waiting for the shoe to drop. But it hadn't happened yet. Pushing into the room, his dad carried a little tray, balancing precariously with chocolate milk and apple slices, cubes of cheese and sliced bell peppers, his favorite snacks. Thanks, Dad, he said, reaching with relief for the chocolate milk, noticing as he did a small vial on the tray. He eyed it suspiciously as he drank the milk. They seem like, like it's getting better, his dad said awkwardly, tentatively. Is it getting better? Remus shrugged and nodded his head a bit. They were getting easier, marginally, it was true, but he wouldn't know if he would call it better. Good, good, that's good. Are you ready for the day? Remus nodded, feeling pleased he hadn't acquired too many new scratches. It would make his glamour and makeup job easier. He'd been exchanging frequent owls about the ministry career day with Peter and James since he'd gotten home, putting Claudia through her paces. Peter was overjoyed to be going to career day with his mom's new boyfriend, Jean Parlow, in the Pest Advisory Bureau. James was disappointed that he wasn't going because his dad worked from home, a potioneer's workshop in the cellar, even though he frequently consulted for the ministry's ludicrous patent and potion regulation departments. Sirius hadn't responded to a single letter since they had left school, and Remus, at the end of June, had stopped writing. What's this? he asked, nodding to the vial. It's ministry approved, his dad assured quickly. I got it from that nice nurse who took care of your mom. I thought after last month, maybe you should have better healing potions. Remus tentatively uncapped and sniffed it carefully. He was instantly soothed as he recognized the potion, one he took nearly every month with Madame Pomfrey. No more shoddy potions or sketchy spells. And he smiled. Thanks, Dad. He tipped the potion back in a quick movement. His dad stood and waved his wand, calling all of Remus's furniture and things back into the room. In a flourish of wand work, his room looked back to normal, as if nothing had ever happened. Get dressed. We have to leave in 40 minutes, he smiled and walked back out the door. No dawdling. In all the years of Lyle Lupin working at the ministry, Remus had never been there. He had never seen the grand golden atrium, the fountain of magical brethren, nor the rows and rows of flues lining the wall. He was filled with a confusing mixture of excitement and irritation. Why had it taken his dad so long to bring him? But stepping onto the lift with his dad's hand firmly on his shoulder was all the salve he needed in that moment. Morning, Lupin, called a short, jittery little warlock in purple satin robes. Morning, Stebbins. His dad greeted, hand tightening slightly on Remus's shoulder. Oh, and is this your young lad? There's so many bright-eyed kids wandering the halls today. Simply wonderful, he exclaimed with an overenthusiastic grin, reaching for Remus's hand. He nodded, the man's papery skin rough against his sweaty palm as they were introduced. Stebbins' eyes lingered on the scars on Remus's exposed wrist, and he silently cursed himself for forgetting to cover them. He had glamoured his face and neck and wore long sleeves despite the warmth of summer, but had forgotten his hands. 
Luckily, the lift jostled to a stop and his dad politely hustled them out into the powdery lilac carpeted hall, lined with muted wood-paneled walls and brass gas lamps. Ahead, he heard the familiar voice before he saw him. Sirius was laughing jovially, dressed in formal robes over slick black trousers and dragon-hide boots, exiting an office with an older, distinguished-looking man in similarly sleek black robes with many gold embellishments. Very well, young Master Black. I must say I was impressed with the way you handled that whip. Those short snouts didn't stand a chance. It's all in the wrist, sir. Sirius was smarming, an infectious smile on his face, flicking his wrist emphatically. The old man wheezed out an appreciative laugh. I knew you'd be a good fit. I just knew it. Ollivander was right about you. Good morning, Mr. Parkinson, his dad greeted, drawing their attention. Sirius let out a startled Remus when he saw them, pure and unadulterated, excitement overflowing with fondness. Sirius's grin big and wide and consuming. Remus cracked a smile, his building resentment and irritation suspended as he saw his friend and realized with startling ferocity how much he ached with missing him. But the moment was short-lived. Sirius quickly and smoothly buried his excitement replaced it with that cool indifference he had become so used to over the last few months. And just as soon as it had gone, the resentment and irritation crashed back over him. Oh, Lupin, my good man, come and say hello to young Sirius Black. I swear he'll be running this department right out of Hogwarts in a few years, mark my words. The things he can do with the Welsh Greens already didn't even need the clankers. A spasmed shadow crossed his dad's face in an instant, but was quickly smoothed away, just as Sirius's exuberance had been. I dare say you two must know one another, the stuffy man asked, looking expectantly between them. Remus nodded, mouth halfway to an answer, before Sirius said, Yes, of course, we share a dorm at school. Remus's eye twitched. Very good, very good. Well then, Remus is your name? Well, Remus, I'm sure you'll enjoy your day with your father. The Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures is full of excitement. Come along, Master Black. We've got several meetings to attend to before we head back out to the reserve tonight. A team from St. Mungo's is meeting us here, and we've got to arrange for the research team to get training in medical grade specimen sampling, and it won't do to be late. Before showing the halfwits how it's actually done on a real thing, he guffawed, rolling his eyes, steering Sirius away. Remus watched as Sirius seemed to broom with excitement, lobbing question after question at Mr. Parkinson, obviously thrilled with the prospect of more afternoon hours amongst the dragons. His dad's job turned out to be quite boring, filled with paperwork and tedious filing systems, bland descriptions of animal complaints and legal heavy documents. He did a few coffee runs, bumping into a frantically overjoyed Peter at one point, who talked a million miles a minute about doxies and poltergeists. Then he ran into a nervously overwhelmed Dorcas, asking him if he knew where the loos were. Frank Logbottom was there, as well as a few Ravenclaws and Slytherins sprinkled into the proceedings. It seemed the ministry was scattered with random and various classmates, but none of them seemed to be Muggleborns. Coming back to his dad's desk after the fourth coffee run, he asked, Dad? Hmm? His dad didn't look up from his filing. How do Muggleborns get exposure to the ministry? What? He asked, sounding confused. I mean, if the only students who get to come to career day are kids of ministry employees, how do any of the Muggleborns get a chance to come? 
Before his dad could answer, there was a snort of laughter from the cubicle next door. An older woman, draped in beige robes accentuated with a wide black patent leather belt and equally as dramatic winged eyeliner, leaned over the divide. They don't, she winked. It's almost as if it's by design. Thank you, Roberta, his dad said through gritted teeth, and she shrugged smugly before walking away, an arm full of files teetering precariously. He sighed heavily, watching her retreat with obvious irritation. Is that true? Remus asked, disturbed at such a bold show of bigotry. It's an open secret, yes, his dad admitted, his voice laced with a heavy emotion. It's the same reason I haven't gotten a promotion or pay raise since I married your mom, he said as he ran a wrinkled hand through stringy hair. It's the same reason why they're talking about passing laws that prevent underage children from performing magic outside of school, as it would only really affect muggle-borns living in non-magic homes. He huffed an unamused laugh before saying, It's the same reason your mate, young Sirius Black, will probably be my boss one day. And it's the same reason I've waited so long to bring you to work. His dad didn't look angry anymore. If anything, he looked sheepish and defeated, as if he was resigned with the way of the world, a world in which he was punished and systematically disenfranchised for marrying a muggle, a world in which his son was in danger for being who he was, a world in which he was a part of, and yet not. Remus didn't respond for a long while, before asking in a low voice, not wanting to be overheard by Roberta again, Why did you marry Mom? His dad looked up, his surprise at the question melting into a bittersweet smile, because she was all the magic I ever needed. Remus's thumb caught the scar on his hand, and he took a deep breath when his dad's quill began to scratch against parchment again. On his fifth coffee run, waiting for a new pot to percolate, he heard whispers from a nearby cubicle. With the way you're handling those dragons, fearless as you are with that whip boy, you could come with on a werewolf roundup, you know. Oh, he heard Sirius's voice, dancing on the edge of cool disapproval and genuine curiosity. Yes, indeed, we've been tipped off that Greyback has been spotted in the south of Wales with his pack. Remus picked up the newly filled carafe of coffee and began to pour it into a mug, his heart racing. And who's Greyback? Well, he's the monster who's been going around and biting children. The Lupin boys seem to have healed well enough. Don't know how it's affected him, but you say you're friends? Uh... Suddenly, Remus didn't seem to have a body anymore. He was a swarm of restless bees trapped under tight, scarred skin. It wasn't until someone shrieked in pain that he came violently back to himself, sweating and stuttering out an apology, a broken coffee pot clutched in his hand. Davy Gudgeon, wincing, covered in scalding coffee, moaned feebly and tried to dry his robes. First the stairs, now this. This place is a nightmare, Remus. I swear, career day, what bullocks. He was whining, and Remus couldn't really place what he was saying. Sorry, Davy, the coffee. I wasn't sorry, mate. He mumbled incoherently, as Davy tried to tell him his woes about how dangerous the ministry was, fraught with danger at every turn, something about a rogue lift trapping him and an angry house elf with a cleaning crew needing to rescue him. Watch it, Gudgeon, he heard Sirius calling behind him, laced with amusement and exasperation as he heartily slapped Davy on the back. You're supposed to drink the coffee, not wear it. Remus turned abruptly away. 
The broken coffee pot still held tight in his hands, unable to face Sirius, leaving Davy to continue ranting behind him. He didn't remember the walk back to his dad's office, but suddenly he was standing in front of him, eyes wide and shaking. As soon as his dad looked towards him, he jumped up from his seat. Remus, what is it? What's wrong? Strong hands gripped his shoulders and he was being examined frantically for injury. Was someone rude to you? Tell me about Greyback, Remus croaked, and his dad's face went white as a sheet. He looked around, surveying the area for eavesdroppers, before pulling a shell-shocked Remus down the hall and into a small, empty office. His dad rubbed his hands over his face, regret etched in every line. Greyback was the werewolf who bit you when you were five. I know that, but... but... Remus was nearly hyperventilating, fear licking his insides, stuttering out half-formed thoughts, tears building in his eyes. But... But why would they, why are they rounding up? Why would they arrest them? It's not their fault they're werewolves, that they bite people. It's not my fault. I can't help it. I don't want to hurt anyone. Remus, Remus breathe, come on. His dad was jostling him to attention, taking deep breaths. Bud, no one is coming after you. You're safe. Greyback is a bad person. That's why they're after him. Him and his pack aren't innocent people that happen to be werewolves. They're bad people who are using their lycanthropy as a weapon. Not all werewolves are like that. You're not like that, okay? You're safe, Remus. But, but it was an accident. I was bitten by accident, he insisted. His entire childhood, he had felt nothing but pity for the werewolf that had bitten him, knowing as he did that during a transformation, he had no choice, no control. The image of the hissing cat swam across his mind, and he felt nauseous at the idea that someone would willingly choose to do that. No, Remus, his dad sighed again, the lines of his face deepening, his shoulders sagging. He looked older suddenly, like he'd aged ten years since they'd entered the office. It wasn't an accident, but let's not talk about it here, he insisted. I'll tell you about it tonight when we're home, okay? Take a deep breath. You're okay. Why don't you go find your friends from school? Go to the canteen. We still have an hour or two before we have to leave. Remus, unable to argue in his current state, took a few shuddering breaths and tried to rally himself. Don't think about it, he chanted, as he remembered the hesitation in Sirius's voice when asked if they were friends. Don't think about it, he urged himself. The thought of Sirius with a whip out on the hunt with unknown ministry wizards, chasing down people like him like he chased a bludger with a bat, hunger in his eyes, haunting him. He rallied himself before nodding to his father, giving him a weak smile. Don't think about it. I'm going to go find Peter, he finally said, clinging to the idea of his friend like a lifeline. Good, good, his dad declared with false normalcy, returning the weak smile that did not reach his eyes. He turned from the office, hands stuffed into his pockets, feet carrying him towards the lifts. He had only made it halfway down the hall when a hand shot out and yanked him sideways into another empty office. Startled and confused, Remus was being squeezed tightly, the smell of dragon leather and spicy soap strong in his nostrils. Remus! Sirius exclaimed in a hushed whisper. Remus returned the hug, a warring mixture of anger and resignation writhing in him. Sorry I haven't written, mate, he apologized, pulling away, a genuine smile gracing his often haughty and patrician features. 
I've been shadowing at the Airy Marionid Indigenous Coastal Dragon Research Center and Ecological Frontier since we left school. It's been amazing. How's working with your dad? How's your summer? Sirius's infectious joy was melting his brain, and Remus felt like he was experiencing some sort of emotional whiplash, going from one extreme emotion to another. He was embarrassingly pleased that Sirius had sought him out, and yet furiously angry at being ignored and tossed aside the way he had been. It was almost as if Sirius were embarrassed to be seen with him, and he felt mortified as his eyes stung a bit. Fine, it's been fine, he lied, unable to look Sirius in the eye, hands still shoved in his pockets, nails digging into his palms, trying to bite back the surge of emotion. I was going to find Pete. Oh, I think he just left with what's-his-name. I ran into him just now. They're off to go deal with a magical rodent infestation somewhere. He seemed excited. Did you see Davy? What? Oh, yeah, I did, Remus said, deflating with the information that Peter wasn't there to distract him. Sirius was laughing, either not noticing Remus's turmoil or tactfully ignoring it. Saw Davy fall down a flight of stairs and not two hours later get stuck in one of the lifts to the DOM. The Ministry's maintenance elves were so mad. Kid's a right menace to himself and others. Remus huffed a reluctant laugh, looking down at Sirius's new dragonhide boots under his crisp, pressed robes. He wasn't ready to let go of his anger, but Sirius was so hard to be mad at. I spilled coffee all over him by accident. Poor sod. Sirius was weak with laughter, hand bracing on Remus's shoulder. Poor sod indeed. So, Remus asked carefully, with a false nonchalance he didn't feel. You're going on a werewolf roundup now. Sirius looked a little guilty, still trying to maintain his smile, seeming to try and make light of it all. Well, no, of course not. It's just, you just don't want them to know we're friends then. Suddenly it was Sirius who couldn't look at Remus, who felt the weeks and months of tension between them rising like the tides. No, no, Remus, of course not. It's just, this is the only way I can stay out of the house, mate. I have to play their games to survive, is all. And the dragons are a much better way to spend my summer than with Walburga at yet another stuffy summer soiree. You get it, right? Yeah, sure, Remus capitulated tenuously. He did see, but it still didn't feel good. Of course, he sighed, giving up his anger and casting about for anything else to talk about. How are the dragons? Sirius preened and pulled something from his back pockets, shaking them in Remus's face. I got fingerless gloves, he nearly yelled. Joy ripped peer across his face. We work from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., and you should see the magic I get to use, Remus. It's so cool. They chatted for nearly an hour, the knot in Remus's chest easing over long minutes of Sirius's soothing voice washing over him, making him forget momentarily about what his father had told him, what he would learn later that night. He considered briefly sharing his worries with Sirius, but was afraid, afraid of opening the door, afraid of losing a shaky grip on his composure. He knew Sirius wouldn't reciprocate, and he did not want their exchange to be one-sided. They chatted and laughed and jostled, and things were just starting to feel normal between them when a disapproving Mr. Parkinson found them giggling madly about Davy Gudgeon stubbing his toe loudly down the hall. "'Ah, there you are, Sirius. Come along. We must get back to the sanctuary. Perkins will be waiting for you.' Sirius straightened up quickly and nodded before turning to Remus, pointedly determined. Write me more, Remus. I've missed your owls. Claudia is a riot. And he winked. Remus rolled his eyes and repressed a grin, stuffing his hands back into his pockets, watching them retreat. 
As you wish, young dragon trainer. The smell of scotch stung Remus's nostrils as his dad poured out a tumbler full. No ice. His ministry robes had been quickly discarded to the arm of the sofa as they walked in the door, a bottle of dark liquid and a thick bottom tumbler hurtling towards them from the kitchen as they sat down. The act did not endear Remus to the conversation that they were about to have. It seemed like a dark portent. Lyle lit a cigarette before looking up at Remus on the other sofa, considering. He pointed his wand towards the kitchen and summoned a second tumbler, and poured half as much as his own before sliding it towards his son. You're a man now. You can drink a man's drink. Remus didn't know what to feel as he lifted the stout glass and held it in his lap. He watched his dad carefully, uncertainly. Lyle lifted his glass and extended it towards Remus, indicating that he should do the same. They silently cheersed. Remus lifted the glass to his lips and let the astringent, stinging liquid touch his tongue. He grimaced and shivered, trying not to sputter violently as the acrid drink slipped down his throat. Lyle swigged half the tumbler in a swift motion, not watching his son struggle with a sip of scotch. Do you know why our family name is Lupin? He asked as Remus tried to take a second tentative sip. It made his tongue somehow burn and feel numb at the same time. No, but I always thought it was a bit weird, all things considered. Remus huffed and took a third sip. Familiars aren't common in English wizarding tradition anymore, but they used to be. It's why Hogwarts lets you take cats to school. Used to be able to take other animals, dogs, for instance. Some people had unicorns or dragons, wolves. They changed the rules, though, when kids started getting hurt. Cats and toads seem safe. Owls are practical, you know. Remus nodded, taking another sip, his limbs feeling warm and loose, the burn on his tongue lessening. Our folk originally came from the northeast, where it was once all wild forest, full of wolves. This was hundreds of years ago, before the ministry, before organized systems of magic. Anyways, the people in our family, your granddad, his dad, and so on, either had wolves as their familiars, their patronus, or as their onomagus form. It's part of our history. What happened? Time, his dad shrugged, downing the rest of his drink and pouring another. Lupin is a legacy of who we used to be. It's just a name, like any other. They were quiet a while. The history lesson was interesting, sure, but it didn't explain Greyback. It felt like he was stalling. Why did Greyback attack me? He finally asked, when the silence stretched and the cigarette burned down. Lyle flicked the ash into his mom's crystal tray and brought the tumbler to his lips again, his eyes dark and downcast. I want you to know that your mom made me a better person. You made me a better person. I was a right shithead before, and it took me a long time to get right, even after you were bitten. Remus was silent. His dad, with less coordination, leaned over to top up Remus's glass, a little more than before. He waited. I drafted a bit of anti-werewolf legislation when you were about three, he breathed out, rubbing his eyes in a tired sort of way. It said that employers were able to actively discriminate against werewolves, as the condition can be such a liability to businesses around the full moon, losing them productivity. Or so that's what the bill had said. 
In reality, I believed, as did many, that werewolves were inherently violent and untrustworthy creatures, that they were not worth our time, support, or resources, that they were a dangerous drain on our small economy. The grandfather clock ticked loudly in the unnatural silence, and Remus couldn't place any of his swirling thoughts and feelings. Greyback, he used to be an outspoken werewolf rights activist, protesting with others outside the ministry, constantly threatening to break the statute of secrecy for equal rights. He was a menace and a constant thorn in the ministry's side. Drove us nuts. And over time, he started to use more and more guerrilla tactics to get our attention. Before I drafted that bill, he had already begun to use his lycanthropy as a weapon, which fueled the flames of anti-werewolf sentiment. He threw back the rest of his tumbler and lit another cigarette. Remus's inside ceased to exist, and he felt numb, his dad's words washing over him in horrible, unrelenting waves. About half a dozen muggle kids had been turned, but the ministry paid no mind. They were muggles, after all. He snorted unkindly, bitter and resentful. I thought I was protecting us, wizards, magical folk. I thought we would be safer without them looming over us, away from us. When Greyback found out I was the one who penned that bill making it impossible for him to work, to earn a living in the magical world, no muggle skills to get by with. He made a public statement threatening us. I didn't take it seriously. I thought, he's madder than a hatter. What could he possibly do to us? Our house was protected with magic, and we were unplottable. But turns out people will rat you out quicker than a flash if they think their kids are in danger. Someone at the ministry told him where to find us. Snuck in through your window... Might have killed you if I hadn't gotten there in time. Remus let out a shaky breath, anger and resentment rising in him like bile. He wanted to shout, to throw his tumbler across the room, rampage and flip the coffee table. Whatever shred of his robbed childhood was left withered in the light of the truth of his condition. His own father had done this to him, with his own petty bigotry and rotten beliefs. He felt the last dregs of respect he had for his dad burn away like the crumbling ash of his mom's muggle cigarettes. By the time Remus finished his glass, his dad had nearly finished the bottle. He stood on uncoordinated legs, head swimming, heart heavy. He went to his room, leaving his dad slumped and quiet on the couch, drowning in his own guilt, to take care of himself for once. It was a quiet summer after that. Seventy-first discussion. Seventy-one. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, Jesus. So we both totally forgot what this chapter was about. So I just had such an enjoyable time listening to it again, as if I've never heard it before. <laughs> even though I betaed it and edited it and, and read was, it like four times. Yeah, yeah, I've read it so many times. Uh-huh. You wrote it. I know. Even reading it, I was like, oh, I forgot that happened. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. But I think I know why you forgot it. Why? Um, because it's unpleasant. Because there's this sentiment of Sirius and Remus drifting apart. Mm, mm, mm. And Remus's jealousy yes. makes its first return. Its and, first real appearance. <laughs> yeah. like it's. For, we've talked about you being mm. a jealous person yeah. previously. Mm-hmm. 
do you want to expand on how you came through in this chapter and why you think you avoided thinking about it afterward? Um, I think this is like a really clear way that my jealousy manifested when I was younger, like mm. to like a um, very dramatic degree. So how do you mean that, like specifically? Um, in the sense of like of of being upset when I know people are hiding information from me or being like weird about um, like something is clearly bothering Sirius and Remus is like, what the fuck can I do to help you? And Sirius wanting to, to obviously not, not to engage with it at all. Yeah. And Remus spiraling. You can see he's so mad that he was vulnerable yeah. and he didn't get the same in return. Yeah. And I think that's, do you think it's fair or unfair of him? Of Remus. Yeah. I think it's unfair. Okay. Yeah. Why do you like that? Well, because like Sirius doesn't owe Remus his stories. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, obviously, it's unfair. But no, thirteen or fourteen year old thinks like that. Yeah. Or twelve that. or whatever. How yeah. Old no teenager thinks like yeah. that. It's very basic. Yeah. <laughs> um, all Remus is sort of exhibiting there is actually just discomfort with his own vulnerability. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. So I remember you writing this and us talking about it, talking about the plot, and me being like, Sirius is doing his own thing. Like, he's going to avoid Mm-mm. engaging with yeah. Remus or talking to anyone. He's mm. been through so much in such a short period of time. He just mm. wants to, like, dissociate away from yeah. it and, and have be a, a good normal, life. Yeah, yeah, just be a normal kid. And you were like, but then they're going to drift apart. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and that's a normal course, I think, yeah. for the two of them. Yeah, and I was like, wow, thanks, I hate it. <laughs> You were super mad about it. Yeah, I was super mad about it. So then you wrote a very angry... Yeah, response. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, fine, I guess they will then. (laughs) Um, So I thought that was... Letting out my inner 13-year-old. Yeah. And then the fact that you, like, I totally blocked out what happened in this chapter. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's why. That's why. (laughs) Oh, I'm a terrible gremlin, that's why. (laughs) But, um... The other thing that was interesting that you blocked out was um, uh, that girl, Marlene, having a crush on Remus. Oh, yes. Yeah. And this idea that, like, you know, he's... We talked about a mm. bit about this in the last chapter, or the chapter before as well, because, you know, they're at that age now where, you know, boys and girls liking each mm-hmm. other is going to be, like, a thing. It's a thing. It happens. Except he's obviously so disinterested. And, and so uncomfortable. Yeah. And he's like, wait, what? I think you really shone through there, too. Yeah. Thanks, I hate it. Yeah. Why do you hate it so much? I think it was something that I really had a hard time understanding at that age. I still struggle to... I mean, now I, like, get people like each other. Obviously, I like people. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Not really. I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, I think you like clamor on to people. You don't like have this like flirty, you know, like that. I can flirt? <laughs> no. No, I can't. No, you I don't. No. I don't even know what's I've, happening. I've never seen you flirt. It's like literally. once you said something nice to like a tomato. <laughs> Or no, actually, you're no, you're not even flirty with the potatoes. You're possessive over them, and jealous. Yeah, jealousy is my flirting. Yeah, I feel like that's a that's real it. unhealthy. That's, that's it. That's all I know how to do is just get weirdly possessive and pace around the thing I like. Yeah, but like silently. Yeah. Or I don't even think you really move. You just are in a corner somewhere, like huh, and then you stare. 
and then you leave. Yeah, no, that's my whole thing. <laughs> that's your that's your flirting. It's amazing anyone talks to me. <laughs> it's very charming. <laughs> oh, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, so as a teenager, it was way worse. Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, sure. Profoundly. I'm sure. Um, and so, like, I never understood when people were flirting with me. Mm-hmm. And I, I had such a hard time recognizing when I liked somebody. Mm-hmm. Like, I was just uncomfortable and didn't know why. And then just, like, would do weird things that I didn't... And then it would be, like, six months later. And I'd be like, oh, wait. Oh. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I was real weird now they're gone. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings and I don't know what any of them are or what to do with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's sort of a, a cool contrast mm. to Sirius's version where he's yeah. become very flirty in mm. the background. He's twirling girls around yeah. and kissing them on he's the like cheek. He's like so confident about it. hair behind their ear. Yeah. You know, like winking all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> Me being like, what? <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. You can, you can write the internal dialogue of mm. Remus so well, but then you also write external Sirius really mm. well. Just sort of like imagining yeah. how other people are so effortless and carefree yeah. about it. Mm. And then you're jealous about it. No, I'm just mad about it. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? How do you <laughs> do, you do how that? How do you time that? <laughs> what is the math involved here? <laughs> you, you're the person who needs like a course. <laughs> you, that is... That would not help. <laughs> yeah, I was just I thinking that helpless. you just fail the course. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's way too much act, like acting that does not come naturally to me. <laughs> but I thought it was really cool how it came mm. across. I think everyone out there, obviously human beings are such a massive spectrum. And, yeah. You know, attraction and flirting and, and puberty and mm. going through all the awkwardness of being a young teenager and liking someone. There's a whole spectrum of how you can act. Yeah. Definitely. Like, what did you say to a person the first time you realized you, like, had a crush on this person? <laughs> it's so embarrassing. I didn't say anything. I sat in the corner and stared at them and for, like, like, a year and a half. Oh, that's a long time. <laughs> until they were like, hey, I actually like you. And I was like, great. Did that with my mind. <laughs> it's been every relationship. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, Yeah. That's how I do that. I don't know how to talk to people. You have, you do. So no. <laughs> you do. No. Kinda. No. I was just trying to think of an an instance where you've gone up to someone and chatted lightly. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> that is not a skill I possess. Because you do have like really good friendships you develop, but it mm. takes you like four years. It takes me a long time to develop friendships. Yeah. Yeah. Like a very long time. It is like. Do you think you've gotten better at it over time? I think I've gotten worse. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I've definitely gotten worse. I've definitely gotten more awkward and like my standards are very weird. (laughs) High. I think your standards are very high. They're high. Unattainable. I think that's because like as we get older, you actually don't need that many close people in your life. Yeah, that's true. Like when you're a teenager, you could have 45 friends Mm. and be like, these are my friends. Yeah. But by the time you get to, like, 25 or 26, you're like, cool, I have, like, eight friends. Mm. But, like, 30, since, you know, in yeah. your 30s. What the fuck? <laughs> you have, like, six days till you're 30? Shut the fuck <laughs> up. Now everyone knows I'm a Leo. <laughs> Love like they didn't before. <laughs> <laughs> Not like I'm the obvious double yeah. line in the room. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously. <laughs> no, I mean, like, by the time you're this age, I mean, you could have below five friends. Easily. Yeah. 
you know, or b- below five people who are very close and important in your life. Yeah. And, and keeping track of more than that is a little bit rough. Yeah, it's so hard. And also, when you make friends, you know, you sort of have to meet such a high bar because it's like, if I'm going to put in all the work yeah. of maintaining a long-term friendship... yeah. You gotta be good. You gotta be. You gotta be good. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta be, be worth it. Yeah, you gotta be not terrible. At yeah, least. you yeah. know, have good boundaries and, and definitely. Yeah, so I think young people are a lot less stringent about their requirements because friendship is more about proximity. Yeah, definitely. And going through similar things, mm. and you know, you're stuck in yeah. class together or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you age. It's sort of like, well, I don't need 45 people I have to keep track of. Yeah, That's exactly. too many. Too many. I don't stay out later than 6 mm. p.m. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> no, I do not. Yeah. I have a lot of peers <coughs> yeah. that I am very close with. But I don't know like about friends specifically. Close yeah. friends. I also think I have below five good mm. close friends. Yeah. Which is fine. It's easier this it's way. It's so much better. So much better. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really kind of what I wanted to write is like, obviously, the people around Remus generally enjoy Remus, mm-hmm. even though he has no idea what he's doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like Marlene and Lily, like, they're just kind of like there being oh, like, Marlene hey, buddy. Marlene thinks he's adorable. <clears throat> yeah. I'm sure I would have thought he was adorable too. And Remus is just there like, <laughs> getting through his day. <laughs> Thanks for letting me borrow a quill. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um... But, like, his internal dialogue, like, he just has so many feelings about the people that he does like, and he has, like, no idea how to cope with any of them or what any of them mean. Yeah. Or, like, how to organize them or deal with them. Yeah. I think it's really interesting the way you put it forward, because it's also, he definitely doesn't understand, like, so at the moment, he's Mm. just jealous of other people being close with Sirius. Yeah. But as a young person, especially who's not, like, aware of the fact that, like, people are gay. Yeah. What would he even think of that? Other yeah, than, exactly. You know, <clears throat> fuck, I feel weird and I, I don't feel, know. I don't I, know why I'm so... an inappropriate feeling. I'm just, like, so mad and I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, him not having those feelings about Peter or James either. Yeah, So, like, exactly. him just kind of, like, sitting there with, like, these very genuine feelings and not knowing what any of them mean. Yeah. Just, I am uncomfortable. Okay, so the next thing that happens in this chapter that I wanted to talk about was Claudia, mm. the adorable owl his dad sends who mm. has one messed up foot. Mm. Um, and you see this sort of rekindling and an apology from his mm. dad. I mean, that obviously leads into the, the later part of the chapter yeah. with you know the stuff that happens at the ministry. So what were you kind of imagining there with the relationship with his dad, how it's progressing? Mm. Like, I kind of imagine after, like... Remus had to disappear and get himself back to school on his own before the full moon. I think that would have been a huge wake-up call for his dad. Mm. And he would have felt really embarrassed and bad and been like, oh my fucking God, like, I have dropped the ball. Yeah. And I think he would have kind of pulled himself up and really made an effort um, to just, like, try and be... And then the moment at the end of the chapter, though, where Remus has to then, like, come to terms with the fact that his dad was basically a bigot. Um, and that his lycanthropy is his dad's fault. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge... As, like, a direct result of his bigotry. Mm, that's a huge <clears throat> thing to have mm-hmm. to sort of sit with. And then, yeah. you know, his dad is the only parent or close family he has left. Yeah. You know, what must he do with that information? Yeah. And 
I thought it was a really interesting place to end the chapter and, mm. and think about like the impact that would have on just how he feels about himself and his yeah. life and his family and definitely and like shedding a little more light on why Lyle was like so reluctant to involve Remus in his life in the magical world well, and his wife as well yeah. you can see the amount of bigotry that's already built like solidly entrenched in the ministry yeah I mean, I love that side character you have in the beige suit yeah. who's, you know, openly bigoted yeah. and, and, you know, it's designed to keep muggle-borns out. Yeah. Um, and also the way that you presented the end of the chapter. Sorry, I'm like mm, skipping no, ahead. Go for it. But this idea, too, that you, it's obvious that Sirius is playing a role yeah, and walking a line. Definitely. And he's trying really hard to, like, skate between this uh, Parkinson, who's mm-hmm. one of the... Sacred 28, yeah. I think, yeah. And then, um, you know, obviously this pure blood tie, this person he has to be because it's like a family mm. connection yeah. versus seeing Remus. <clears throat> Definitely. I mean, that's such a difficult place to be in. And Sirius acts like a huge dick. Yeah. From and like, Remus, and Remus is just like so, doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And yeah. Because <clears throat> he's so friendly to his yeah. face, but then he's talking about these werewolf hunts yeah. with the other one you know, people in the ministry and, mm. and also a good insight into how much privilege Sirius has yeah. versus someone like his dad or Remus himself. Yeah, definitely. I think this is the first time, well, I mentioned it a little bit with like Slughorn favoring mm-hmm. Sirius, but this is like a real world yeah. post-school, yeah. you know, lifelong job. You'll be running this department and Lyle's just there like, fuck me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. I've been here for years. Yeah. You stupid fuck. <laughs> Fucking piss ant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I, I mean, and that's very much how it is though. Yeah. I mean, the sort of nepotism and the systems of power, um, giving people in power more privilege and yeah, more privilege absolutely. leads to more power. And, yeah. um, I think it's obvious that Sirius is milking that for all it's worth. The, that scene with him and Cadmus mm. in the bathroom, he says, I've got something lined up for the summer because he knows he can't be at home. Yeah. Or like he's not going to be able to stomach being at home. Yeah, definitely. So obviously this is, you, you have to see the stakes are so high yeah. for him. <clears throat> but Absolutely. I mean, he's playing a very bigoted game. Mm. So Remus has very his, dicey first, game. his yeah. first real glimpse of that mm. and the glimpse of the secrets that Sirius is keeping. Yeah. And it's kind of like a dicey thing, you know, like, are you prioritizing your, like, your safety and escape or mm-hmm. the fact that you have real friends? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Or that you don't believe <laughs> yeah. in what they're saying. I yeah. mean, do you act like a bigot to save your own skin? Mm-hmm. Is that an acceptable thing to do? I don't have an answer for that question. Yeah. I mean... I think it's a really interesting question, especially with what's happening in the world today. Completely, completely. And like, you know, trying to dismantle these like systems of power, like in, in what areas in our life do we take advantage of having privilege and use it inappropriately? I mean, not only is that a huge international question, but it's a question we certainly have to ask ourselves as white people living in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, daily, if Mm. not like our entire existence here. Mm. I mean, and we've had this discussion so much repeatedly because of that news story that broke, what was it, last year? Mm-hmm. Of that woman um, in Uganda. Yeah. The American woman who pretended to be a doctor, basically. And the fallout from that and the death of over 100 children. Mm. Um, and, and we've gotten into discussions repeatedly with so many people um, 
you know, from Southern Africa and beyond, actually, who have this idea that Westerners or white people or Americans particularly mm. are always good people. Or inherently know what they're doing or talking about just yeah. on the basis that they're American. Yeah. And it becomes so easy and, yeah, to take advantage of that. Exactly. And, the, you know, they're imbued with so much power. Mm. The power dynamic is so skewed that to be someone from the West, someone white, someone from outside of this continent to come mm-hmm. here, like you have to be aware of that mm-hmm. and you have to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. And you have to make decisions around what you engage with and what you don't because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, from all corners of the world, that's probably true in varying contexts yeah, and varying yeah. places. I mean, you could probably say that's true for various areas of the U.S. Even. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think... It's a very difficult question to ask a, what is he? He's 13. Yeah. So a 13-year-old is your safety. And you have to think, what does it mean, your safety? I mean, his physical safety, Mm -hmm. is it at risk? His psychological safety, his Mm -hmm. emotional safety. I'd say all three are probably Mm. at risk, but not his mortality. Mm. Like, I don't think they would kill him. Yeah. But they're certainly going to beat him and make him miserable. So is that something he's willing to take on to stand up to bigotry. Yeah. That's a really hectic question. That is. So who is supposed to stand up in situations like that? People with power. Mm -hmm. So we would ask, you know, where are the teachers of Hogwarts, the other professionals? Mm -hmm. Other people in the ministry. Exactly. This world, as we understand it, is already steeped in so much bigotry Mm -hmm. that so many adults in power are not safe. Yeah. Um, and you, that's something so similar to the discussion we have about, you know, racism and white supremacy mm. in the U S like, if you think about the police, the police are not Absolutely. safe, you know, people in power are not safe. Generally, yeah. you would have to really work to find someone who's sympathetic and understanding yeah. and, you know, could actually do something. Definitely. So systemic failures all around. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's so subtle the way that we're sort of talking about these huge issues. Mm. But But obviously we know it leads to a war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, it's so subtle presenting now. But something so subtle and insidious can easily lead to a war when you dehumanize people so systematically and so effectively. And I think, you know, the the only option at the end of the day ends up being, you know massive amounts of standing up to this violence Mm. and if that means war that means war because the scales have tipped so dramatically that you know to protect people you have to yeah um and that's obviously a huge question that's been going on in the u.s for months now Mm. years decades years yeah centuries (laughs) since its inception (laughs) yeah um that this idea of like and it's so convoluted too because so many of these ideas have been taken over by factions that are something like white supremacists yeah. or who do, who do things for their own personal or group gain. Mm. So like so often you'll hear people who are hardcore republicans let's say mm. say things like it's the duty of the citizen to overthrow a government yeah. when it is no longer representative of the people. Yeah. That is such a hard and fast idea of yeah. American idealism. 
But when black Americans stand up and say this government is, or this system or these power structures yeah. are not representative of us and they're not safe for us, mm. we should stand up and overthrow them. Obviously, that becomes... Super divisive. Yeah, and suddenly people who would say that will no longer apply it to this other group. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, you have to look at systematic dehumanization. Yeah, definitely, because, and that fundamental lack of empathy. Yeah. Well, that's what systematic dehumanization mm. does. I mean, if you had empathy, you would say, I understand where you're coming from. I understand that you, too, feel the desire to overthrow systems that don't represent you. That's mm. an ideal I hold. We are yeah. together. Yeah, <laughs> you <know>? exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you don't see that as a, that person as a person, then you're not going to say we are together. Yeah. You're going to say you're wrong. Definitely. And, you know... I, it's so often and so strange how talking about random shit in the Harry Potter universe is <laughs> suddenly so applicable. <laughs> yeah, and well, because these are core themes that humanity is grappling with. Yeah, I mean, definitely. so many people draw parallels between the Harry Potter universe and the um, World War Two. Yeah. So you know the the systemic systematic dehumanization of the Jewish population, mm-hmm. for example, and how. You know, this group was so captivated with this idea of um, garnering power for their group and yeah. then dehumanizing another group. Definitely. And that is probably a, a story that history has told repeatedly. Yeah. You know, it's endemic. And I feel like we have gotten to the point in our global society that we should be able to say, like, that's not okay. Yeah, exactly. Let's not do that anymore. Yeah. Let's actually just make it less horrible for everyone <laughs> and yet here we go repeating it over yeah, and over again exactly. in so many iterations yeah yeah and then like i mean we've mentioned this in a previous um chapter as well but like serious just having access to people like remus in like close proximity and being able to make friends with them has completely shifted his entire worldview and it's mm. like made him start completely. really questioning those behaviors like knowing Remus and knowing about his mom and mm. just like being able to see him as an individual who mm. loves and who's mm. you know affected by things and who has a great depth of character mm. and yeah. yeah just basic humanity yeah <laughs> even exactly. though he is a werewolf which is at the end of the day pretty meaningless yeah exactly it's just like a thing that he has to deal with every month <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly his furry little problem yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Sorry, I like went off on a bit of a tangent there. No, it's relevant. It is. I think it is. Mm. Especially when we think about the world that we're in today. And I mean these issues, you know, they're not going anywhere. Mm. They are massive. I mean the yeah. situation in the US racial inequality in the US I mean, unless there are serious, concerted efforts at things like reparations mm. and uh, huge Com- reform of like the police. Com- yeah, community investment and like defunding the police and allocating resources to like... And coupled with massive amounts of education of yeah. the populace. I mean, uh, last week tonight, I don't know if you saw it from this week was on American history. Oh no, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, and I mean, it's, we have to do, I think globally, be more honest about history Mm -hmm. and about the fact that 
you know, the history that so much, so much of the world is taught is so biased. Yeah, and so sterilized and sanitized. And so unhelpful. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that. Mm. You could do any topic. American history, but also the history of colonization, yeah. the history of this entire continent. But I mean, those are intertwined, you know? Completely. Like American history Completely. and colonization, like, America was founded on genocide, and I feel like that's not spoken about enough. No, at all. Not. Like, certainly not. Um, but you could say that for, for many areas yeah. of the world. I mean, especially if you consider, like, cultural genocide, mm-hmm. linguistic genocide. Mm-hmm. I mean, this whole region that we live in, there are probably a hundred languages that have disappeared mm-hmm. just from this area. Yeah. Um, and that is, aside from the no- huge numbers of people that were killed, that is a massive cultural genocide. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And that's just one tiny area yeah. compared to this entire continent, which has been systematically destroyed. Well, and the- continues to be. Oh, yeah. Like, functionally continues to be, like, But then we have to talk about capitalism. Yeah. Oh, my God. We don't have time to talk about capitalism. (laughs) Sweet Jesus. We'll tie that into another episode. (laughs) We can talk about it when Sirius is forced to reconcile with the fact that he is no longer wealthy. Mm. Or no longer has access to, like, monetary power. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about like intersections of power. Yeah, definitely. Okay, sorry to jump around mm. so much, but I also wanted to talk about um oh, Remus goes to the Whomping Willow by himself. Oh yeah. Do you wanna talk about why you did that or why that idea came to you? Um I wanted to kind of like bring this idea that he is like growing up Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Like he's coming to like revelations about himself, about his friends. Like he's like realizing that their relationships are changing, that they all kind of have lives outside of Hogwarts. And like also, you know, Madame Pomfrey is not going to hold his hand through his entire seven years at Hogwarts to take him to the Whomping Willow. He's got to start showing personal responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember you saying, so my chapter, I talked so much about this idea of, like, serious, quote-unquote, becoming a man. Yeah. Which is, it's such a stupid phrase, I have to say. I hate mm. it. Especially when you, like, tie it into, like, um, like sexual experience. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, yeah. So I should clarify that, like, the perspective of, of people who are saying he's becoming a man yeah. is incredibly skewed yeah. and entirely <laughs> based on, like, toxic masculinity Mm. and patriarchy but okay so but this idea that he's being like thrust into this new understanding of the world Mm. and growing up and then you sort of wanted to parallel what would that look like for remus yeah and that includes taking more ownership of Mm. his lycanthropy yeah and being a werewolf and having to do his monthly things yes definitely um so i thought that was kind of a cool insight Mm. into like this development that they're going through um yeah, definitely. And, like, in in a bit of a... I mean, we've kind of mentioned, like, from the beginning, they're very adult children. Like, yeah. they, they are, already are very responsible. Yeah. But I don't think they've realized that. Like, or, or like, understand what that means in context to, like, their peers, you know? Like, 
I think starting to understand that, you know, kids like maybe Peter and James don't have to like think about and be responsible about so many things. Well, James is being responsible for the two of them. Yeah. Because he's just and got Peter. that emotional energy to burn. <laughs> he's just too healthy. He's just so healthy he can just spread the love. <laughs> but like Rima's understanding like, you know, that maybe that's not so normal. And like, but there are things that he can identify and then be responsible for. Like he's choosing to be responsible for this. Yeah. Which is a little bit different than just like being thrust into something and being forced to carry it. Yeah. So you also tied into this growing up thing, him going to the ministry, learning about his yeah. dad's job and learning about his dad's role in his own. Yeah being a werewolf. Mm. Um, so there's lots of moments where he's sort of like reconciling mm. with this new path that he's on of like self-discovery. Yeah. And yeah. Mitigating the relationships he has with others. Mm. And, and Davy Gudgeon. I was just going to say, can we talk about the ongoing joke that is Davy Gudgeon? Yeah. I feel so bad for this child. Yeah. But like, because we keep torturing him and we'll continue to torture him for the rest of existence, yes. But it's so funny. He's Just... like a daily joke in this house. Yes. It's like, Davy Gudgeon is my buddy. Mm-hmm. I, I had canon that he's eventually just going to like freak the fuck out yeah. and join the Death Eaters. Yeah. <laughs> like he's going to have a complete meltdown and be like, yeah. I fucking hate all yeah. of you. The one Hufflepuff that yeah. like defects to the Death Eaters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> out of sheer spite. And Sirius and Remus have no idea why. <laughs> yeah, so he's one of those characters where it like seems like he's being hectically bullied, and like yeah, they do bully yeah. him. But like a lot of it's just like happenstance bullshit. Yeah, a lot of it <laughs> just is just like bad very, luck. Like, yeah, he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. It's just like always in passing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we also have a, a lot more planned for Davy Gudgeon. For Davy Gudgeon. Shame. Yeah. What's the part in canon that his head was twice normal size? Yeah, it's like fourth or fifth year yeah it's coming that ain't the only incident oh no it's not (laughs) oh no (laughs) um oh yeah also what you built into this chapter because i was gonna say we don't have that much animosity with snape Mm. and that's because sirius is currently under slytherin protection Mm, because mm. the older slytherins who were maybe knew about ishtar or involved Mm. in the sacred 28 or part of the like Mm. hardcore pure blood Mm, mm. things would have heard about him being there Mm. Um, and heard about him being part of, like, in the fold. Yeah. Um, so he garners a lot of protection yeah. from that. Um, and you can see he's he's not really happy about it, but mm. he's also not disrupting it yeah. at all. Yeah, at all. Like, James tries to say something and he freaks out. Yeah. 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 So Absolutely. he's got a lot going on in the background. Mm-hmm. And Remus is just trying to live his life. Yeah, exactly. Just like confused and <laughs> And I really <laughs> like how you are building this idea that James has had this like flame burning for yeah. Lily. He also doesn't recognize his own feelings no, for Lily. He just has a lot of feelings. Yeah. Similar to Remus, yeah. but more he's, intense. <laughs> he's real mad about it. Yeah. But they exist. Yeah, they exist. And they're not going anywhere. And Remus like sees it very clearly. Like, ironically. Uh, yeah, ironically. <laughs> no introspection, but like, James, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. You're clearly infatuated with this person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like it. Um, I, I, I really like building James's character. I find it very fun. Yeah, you write him really well. And he the, and Peter both. Yeah, and this idea that like he would get so worried and fussy over Remus picking... Mm, and the whole hand holding I loved that that was so cute actually Um, and really sweet 
Mm. Um, and, and one of those things you were talking about, like yeah. embarrassment, yeah. being a, a, a good driver for mm-hmm. like interrupting behaviors. Yeah, definitely. That's a great, but like moment. also in like such an affectionate way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what an excellent way of disrupting that. <laughs> yeah. And I always had Kenan James is so straight. Yeah. Like you, yeah. Just like painfully straight, yeah. like pathologically <laughs> heterosexual. <laughs> I know, but it's like really lovely and nice, mm-hmm. and uh, and him just so comfortable with that. Like he he's very comfortable touching his friends. Yeah, he's gonna hold his friend's hand. Yeah. Like no big deal. This is not gay. Mm. I just love you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so much, and I'm gonna tell you constantly. Yeah. Now it does. everyone knows. Yeah, <laughs> tell everyone. <laughs> oh man, that's really sweet. Yeah, I have to say the way you write the four of them, I love it. I really struggle with that. Oh, like the dialogue. Just the the dynamic of so many characters together. Yeah, I found that probably the most challenging thing of writing this is like when the four of them are together, like keeping track of four bodies and personalities. is Because they're so just, distinct. Yeah. It's so different from writing Blood Magic, mm. I have to say. Where we don't have to like juggle that many people usually at a time. Well, the most I did was like the meetings, which mm. is so structured in a way. Mm. But um, yeah... The vast majority of that were writing just the two of them. Yeah. I mean, the whole forest so easy. <laughs> was just the two yeah, of them the and a lot of festivals. A lot of fucking festivals and one owl. <laughs> yeah. But that was only late in the forest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I have to say, like, yeah, it's difficult, but it's really enjoyable. Mm. Um, it's definitely a, a different skill set that I'm learning. Well, and it feels like a different world. Yeah. I mean, I know it's the same world. We are bringing festivals back. Don't worry. They're actually mm. in the chapter I just wrote. Yeah. <laughs> so they're coming. Mm. But, um, yeah. We, we have a lot more work to get to mm. the sort of mythical side of things. Yeah. It's alternate universe so that we... foundational building. Jesus. Yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> but I really enjoyed this chapter. It was yeah. sweet. Mm. Yeah, it was really fun. Do you have any more thoughts about it? Um, no, no, I do not. You do not? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just re-missing a lot of feelings. <laughs> That's your whole thing. That's my whole thing. Being really <laughs> uncomfortable with vulnerability. Yeah, and jealousy. And jealousy. I'm very comfortable with jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> that is like your old, yeah. your old comfort zone. Yeah, it's great. I'm, it's do, you, do you think you'll ever not be jealous? No. <laughs> that was a very rapid I think, answer. I think... Jealousy for me used to be really problematic because like I've said before, it's like that is an ugly emotion that I refuse to acknowledge that I feel. And now it's like, yeah, obviously I'm jealous, but I'm not going to let it ruin my day or other people's day. I'm just going to be like, yeah, so (laughs) I'm just going to scratch around here like an angry chicken for a second and then we're all going to go about our day. (laughs) Just let me feel my feelings and then we're done. (laughs) So I think that's a little bit different now. I think I'm just very honest about it now. Yeah. And I don't expect it to be ameliorated. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't expect anyone to, like, change their behavior, like, mm. do anything. You know it's, it has to be something you do internally. Yeah, yeah. It's just my own thing. Like, this is my reaction, and it's mine, and I'm just going to sit here with it for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is different than how I used to deal with it, which was just so unhealthy. And explosive. <laughs> and obsessive. It was terrible. <laughs> Sounds like a great time. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. 
Are we done? I guess so. Do you have any questions for me? You never have any questions for me. It's always me who asks all the questions. I know, questions. it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about your next chapter. Do you want me to read it now? It's dragons. <laughs> yes. because <laughs> The other dragon chapter. <laughs> because he's that airy marinade indigenous yeah. something. <laughs> Coastal. It's the world's longest forest name you dragon name. reserve. I don't know. It's the real name. It's just Welsh. Oh, yeah. We don't speak Welsh, so yeah, if we're that mispronouncing was, that. That was rough. We're sorry. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's super exciting. Okay, I think we're done. Okay. Thanks, okay. everybody, Bye, for everyone. listening. Have a lovely rest of your day, evening. Time. Existence. Time. Existence. Enjoy your existence. <laughs>